Well, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 54. We are picking up in Luke's gospel, uh, specifically Luke's, uh, Luke chapter 11. It's been a few weeks since we've, we've been here. As you recall, Jesus is on his way journeying to Jerusalem. He has left his earthly ministry in the region of Galilee, and now he's headed to Jerusalem. And here, in this passage particularly, we, we see Jesus has some very strong words for the religious leaders of his day, both the Pharisees and the scribes or the lawyers. So Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 54, please pay careful attention, for this is the word of our God. While Jesus was still speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. Now the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These, ought, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees! For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load with burdens. You load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are the witnesses. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, we are coming off the, the Christmas season, and during this season we hear of Jesus who is sweet and mild. We hear of the Jesus, the baby Jesus, who lied in a manger. Now, of course, Jesus is tender and, and compassionate, even right now at the right hand of the Father to those, uh, to his people. But we can't put Jesus in a box. This Jesus who is sweet and mild is also the Jesus who came in his first 
coming to bring the final sanctions of the Mosaic Covenant upon unbelieving Israel. This Jesus who is sweet and mild is also the Jesus who will come again in judgment. This Jesus who is sweet and mild is also the fierce lion of Judah. Thus Jesus comes both in weal, that is blessing, but he also comes in woe and curse and judgment. In this passage particularly, we see that Jesus has some very strong words for the religious leaders of his day. The Pharisees, but also the lawyers, or you could, you could also refer to them as the scribes, the legal experts of first century Judaism. Now the Pharisees had quite the reputation of being meticulous law keepers. In a lot of ways, their profession was to engage in the study, interpretation, observance of the law of God. They were professional law keepers. And so the irony, if you were a first century hearer of this, of Jesus' words, the irony of Jesus' words is that he's saying, woe to you, Pharisees. That is to say, cursed are you Pharisees, for you break the law. The professional law keepers are cursed because they break that very same law. Now, if you're a first century here, you'd think, well, what hope is there for me? The professionals can't even do it. How can I do it? Why does Jesus issue such strong woes, such strong statements of, of curse and judgment? Well, the law does two things. The law both blesses and it curses. It blesses those who keep it and it curses those who transgress it. And Jesus, as the divine lawgiver, the new Moses, has the authority then to bless the adherents of the law and then curse the transgressors of the law. And the Pharisees, the, the lawyers, the scribes, there were those who, who were looking to their observance of the law to be part of their acceptance before God. And what Jesus is doing in this passage is utterly exposing them. Exposing their hypocrisy. Exposing their sinfulness. Exposing how rather than loving their neighbor, they're leading their neighbors, those, whom are those who are following them, into the same pit of destruction that they have dug for themselves. So Jesus brings woe to those who break God's law. And here in this passage, his woe is reserved for the Pharisees, the, the lawyers. And so I'd like us to first consider the Jesus of woe, but then towards the end, I want us to also consider how we can experience the Jesus of weal, the Jesus of blessing. But first, let us consider the Jesus of, of woe. We see here in this passage six statements of woe to both uh, the Pharisees in part, and then the lawyers as well. We also have an additional implicit woe in verses 37 through 41, which is uh, how I want to begin. And in this first implicit woe, Jesus indicts the Pharisees of hypocrisy. Now this passage begins with Jesus receiving an invitation from a certain Pharisee to dine with him in his home. Jesus accepts this, this invitation and we, we learn, we hear about a, a traditional custom in first century Judaism, that is the custom of washing before one eats. Now this might not seem very unusual to us as 
Most of us wash our hands before we uh, partake of a meal. But first century Jews, pious Jews, washed before they ate, not primarily for sanitary reasons, but for religious reasons. They did this in order to be ritually or, or ceremonially clean before they partook of the meal. Now this wasn't a, a law that was explicitly legislated in God's law in the Old Testament. Rather, it was a custom, a tradition that had developed over centuries, over time. And Jesus here intentionally does not wash. Now this would have been probably somewhat rude as a guest at a dinner was expected to comply with the with the the norms, the customs of the host. But Jesus intentionally does not wash because he wants to illustrate to this Pharisee an important point. And that point is that not only this Pharisee, but the Pharisees in general were engaged in in hypocrisy. He makes this explicit in verse Verse 39, as he says that the Pharisees, there are those who cleanse the outside of the cup. Outside of the cup is pristine, it's shiny, it's clean, but inside of the cup, they're full of greed and wickedness. Their outward image appears to be fine, but inwardly and private, they're full of wickedness. He makes a similar point in verse 43, as he says that these, these Pharisees love sitting in the best seats of the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. They love the public places that can manifest their outward piety. What Jesus is hinting at is that the Pharisees have failed to understand that the law reaches not only to our outer man, but to our inner man. Not only to our outward actions, but to our inward dispositions. Jesus himself taught his disciples this in the Sermon on the Mount as he clarified that when the law says do not murder, it's not just talking about the outward external act of murder, it's actually speaking to anger, to your thoughts, to your emotions. When the law says do not commit adultery, it's not merely speaking of the act of adultery, it's speaking of of lust in the heart. In fact, if you recall reading the law, which also is in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us that important principle. The quality of the root affects the fruit. Our heart dispositions lead to our outward actions. And the Pharisees, they they did a great job of trying to hide the fact that they had bad fruit and thus had a bad root. Imagine if someone has an apple tree that's rotten or diseased and only produces rotten and diseased apples. And that person, to try to cover up the fact that they have a a rotten apple tree, paints these rotten apples so that from a distance it appears that this is just an ordinary apple tree. But if you get close to it, you realize that these are rotten apples. That's that's what hypocrisy is like. That's what the Pharisees were like. They tried to put forward this outward image of piety and righteousness, but if you got close to them, you realize that they were full of greed and, and wickedness. They were hypocrites. And Jesus indicts them of their hypocrisy. In verse 42, we we move on to another one of Jesus' woes to to these Pharisees. And he he says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and and ruin every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. And here, 
Jesus is indicting the Pharisees for focusing on the minutia and missing the obvious, missing the, the heart of God's law. They were great tithers. According to Old Testament law, Jews had to tie the tenth of all that they had. As one commentator says, if a Jew grew a sprig of rosemary, they better have a tenth of that sprig tied to God, a tenth of everything. And the Pharisees were meticulous tithers. They always had their portion ready to go. But they missed the very heart of the law. They missed the obvious acts of love and justice that confronted them every day. They focused on the periphery and they missed the heart of the law of God. One reason they they may have done this is it probably was a bit more flashy, even radical, to be the, the best tithers in the area rather than to love the downcast of society, love those who are difficult to love. I think we're all tempted to do this. I think we're all tempted to really focus on certain aspects of God's law. You know, tithing was indeed an aspect of God's law that called for obedience. And I think we're, we're at times tempted to focus on certain minutia of God's law and then miss the, the most obvious and basic acts of love and justice that are right before us. For instance, it seems more flashy, right? Radical to help the impoverished in a third world country than the family in the next pew or in the next house down from us. Sometimes it feels more radical, flashy to have that robust quiet time where we know all of these things about God's word and theology and we're spending all this time in prayer, but we don't actually love the people in our midst, the people who are hard to love. And one example from history is uh, the missionary uh, William Carey, he's oftentimes referred to as the father of modern missions. And the Lord did indeed use him mightily to reach the people of, of India. But as many biographers have noted, he pretty much neglected his wife who suffered from deep depression and, and did a very poor job of providing for his children. So yes, God used him mightily on the mission field, but he overlooked the greatest acts of obedience which God had called him to, which is to be a faithful father and husband. Somewhat like what the Pharisees did. They wanted to be great tithers, but they missed the heart, the basic acts of obedience which God called them to. So where are you overlooking? The ordinary, just the obvious acts of, of love and justice which the Lord has called you to. In verse 44, Jesus moves on. He says, still to these Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, in the first century, at Judaism, graves would always be marked, usually whitewashed. And the purpose of this was in order to signal to people that this is a grave where there's a dead body, stay away. According to the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, if you came in contact with a dead corpse, you'd be defiled. You'd have to undergo various acts of purification in order to be restored back into the life of the people. 
and thus these graves would be whitewashed. You wouldn't want an unmarked tomb to be inadvertently defiled. And Jesus here is saying that the Pharisees are, are like unmarked graves. Just as if someone is walking over an unmarked grave, they would think that the ground below them is just regular dirt, when actually they're inadvertently being defiled by a dead corpse. So too, these Pharisees have the facade of being religious, pious, righteous, but actually they're leading people away from God, leading people into destruction and error. They're like unmarked graves. And then in verse 45 and 46, Jesus uh, moves on from the Pharisees and he addresses the lawyers because the lawyers, they're overhearing this and they think to themselves, yeah, Jesus isn't speaking to us, but man, this is insulting. So Jesus addresses them directly in 46 as he says, What do you lawyers also? For you load with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. What's being referred to here is what uh, other places refer to as fencing the law. The scribes and the Pharisees had this practice of, of fencing the law. So you have what God's law actually says, and then what they did is they came up with these man-made laws, their own laws, that were more specific in order to prevent people from breaking one of God's actual laws. Jesus sometimes refers to these as the traditions of men. If you think, for example, of a cattle, a pen of, uh, yeah, pen or a herd of cattle, if you want this, this herd of cattle not to leave your property, it would make sense to have a fence around your property. You can think of that as God's law. But now imagine if that, that farmer put, puts another fence inside that fence, and they think to themselves, well, the chances of a cow getting out of two fences is quite quite small. And so if a cow is going to get out of a fence, let it be the inner fence because technically they're still in the pen. That's kind of what the Pharisees thought. They thought if people are going to break a law, let it be one of our man-made laws and not one of God's laws. Let's add these additional stricter laws. And this is another area where the church, I think, has, is always tempted uh, to, to do what, what the Pharisees have done here. Because it's easier, is it not? For instance, the, you know, the Bible condemns drunkenness. It's a lot easier just to outlaw alcohol altogether. You know, the Bible uh, calls the word, uh, the word to dwell in us richly. It's a lot easier to legislate how much and how long we need to read our Bibles each and every day. You know, the Bible calls us to raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's a lot easier to, to just tell people what educational option they have to choose. The Bible calls for civil leaders to promote justice and peace. It's a lot easier to just tell people who they need to vote for. It's easier to deal with issues as black and white. To create our own fences within the word of God. But what happens when we do this, when churches do this, when the Pharisees did this, is that Christianity becomes burdensome. Trying to obey God's actual law is, is hard enough, even as we do it out of gratitude. But trying to keep up then with all these traditions of men, as it were, this, these additional list of, of items that we need to do that's been imposed upon us, that, 
that becomes a, a burden, a burden that's hard to bear. This is what Jesus is indicting the lawyers of doing. Uh, and if your version of, of Christianity feels burdensome, if passages like Matthew 11, which we heard in the call to worship, where Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. If that doesn't comport with your understanding of Christianity, you're probably in, in, in circles such as this, that fence the law, that add to God's law all of these traditions. Jesus continues in verses 47 through 51, and he says that these religious leaders of, of his day, they're, they're really no better than the forefathers of old who killed the prophets. They're building the tombs uh, for the prophets that their fathers have, have killed. And, and we also see Jesus referring to the fact that the sanctions, the curses that God gave to the people of Israel under Moses, the sanctions of this covenant are coming upon this generation. The generation that's rejected the Messiah of God. And Jesus refers to Abel as the first righteous man who was murdered, and Zechariah, who is the last prophet in, in the Hebrew Old Testament canon, who was also uh, murdered. And he puts the religious leaders of Jesus' day in the same category as the forefathers of old. And then Jesus' last woe comes to the scribes as they are taking away the keys of knowledge. You know, the the leaders, the religious leaders of, of, the, of their day, the ones who were devoted their life to the study of, of the God's law, they were meant to illuminate the law of God, not to muddle it. But yet that's exactly what they were doing. They were leading people into confusion and error when they actually should have been doing the opposite. And thus, Jesus comes in this passage in woe, in curse, in judgment, because the Pharisees, the scribes, the professional law keepers of the day have failed to uphold the law. The law which calls us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Pharisees were hypocrites in their love for God. The law which calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. The, the Pharisees actually were leading their neighbors into destruction, loading burdens upon their shoulders and not lifting a finger to help them. And thus they justly deserved Jesus' condemnation. You know, we read earlier in our catechism that the holiest of men have just a small beginning of true, perfect obedience. In the first century, the Pharisees, if you're a first century Jew, the Pharisees are the holiest of men. This is what they do for a living. And Jesus here is exposing that even they have just a small beginning of true obedience. Jesus' point here is to expose the utter sinfulness, hypocrisy of the religious leaders of Israel. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we all can say that we, we're exposed as well. We are hypocrites. We tend to try to make the outward appearance better than what's actually going on in the inside. We oftentimes want that pristine clean, shiny outer cup when the inside is still full of, of muck and mold. You know, we are easy, uh, we're attracted to the radical, 
the flashy acts of obedience, which, are, which is going to give us a name, but we often neglect the ordinary acts of obedience which lie right, ahead, right, right before us each and every day. It's easy for us to want to add to the law of God. To add restri- uh, restrictions, requirements where God has not done so. We can even do this with other people, burdening them where God has not burdened them. And if we're exposed where the Pharisees are exposed, although there are unique differences between us and the Pharisees, we also are worthy of these woes, of these judgments and curses. And so the question now comes to mind is, how do we experience the Jesus of weal, the Jesus of blessing? It's pretty obvious why we would experience the Jesus of woe as those who are unholy by nature. How are we cleansed? Well, the law of God exposes us. As we saw in our catechism, exposes us. It reveals the dirt of our hearts. It's like a spotlight revealing the muck of our sinfulness. But the law cannot give us a remedy. The law does not give us the soap and water that we need to cleanse ourselves. It's powerless to do that. It just exposes us. And the woes that Jesus gives the Pharisees were meant to expose them, but to expose them in order to lead them to himself, to humble them. And this is what we read in our catechism. The law is meant to expose us, it's meant to expose us to prepare us for Christ. Well, so how do we experience the Jesus of, of blessing, the Jesus of, of weal? Well, we place our faith in this Jesus. We know what he came to do. We know who he is and we assent to that knowledge. We trust, most importantly, that he did this work on our behalf. Not only to others, but to me also. And when we do this, we are promised that God views us now through the prism of Christ. And when he views you through the prism of Christ, he doesn't see you in yourself naked and exposed, full of sinfulness and muck, but he sees the perfect satisfaction of Christ. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. Now think about the righteousness of Christ. Jesus was the only one who was not hypocritical, who obeyed God from the inside out, who had a a clean outside of the cup, but even a cleaner inside of the cup. Jesus was engaged in the most radical mission of all as he came as the second Adam to accomplish salvation for his people, but yet he didn't overlook the basic acts of love and justice. He honored his father and his mother. He invested into ordinary men. He loved the downcast of society. Jesus came not to burden his people, but to give his people rest, as we heard in the call to worship. Jesus came to bring his spirit, who is the key to the knowledge of God. And thus, when God views you through this prism of Christ, he sees you as forgiven. He sees you as righteous, not in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of this Jesus. Thus, the biggest problem of the scribes and the Pharisees was not ultimately their hypocrisy or their pride or their inclination to add to the law of God, but rather their biggest problem was their unbelief, their rejection of Jesus as their mediator. And that's the biggest problem for, for people today, for mankind in general, is not hypocrisy or pride or inclination towards 
various acts of, of sin, but their biggest problem is unbelief. Rejection of what Jesus came to this earth to do. To live and die for sinners. In a few moments, we will partake together of the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that in Christ, we are not cursed, but we are blessed. In the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that Jesus' blood was spilt so that ours won't be. In the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that Jesus came to this earth, became like us so that we might one day become like him. We're reminded that Jesus is no longer our judge, but our merciful and compassionate high priest. And most of all, the Lord's Supper is for us a fellowship with the Jesus of weal and blessing.